Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast for thebattleground.eu. I'm a little sleepy this morning. I stayed up far too late watching Olympic curling. I know that the Olympic Games and the Olympic movement are a revolting, elitist, possibly fascist enterprise, but I just can't help myself when I see Scandinavian people sliding rocks down the ice. I just, I just find it entrancing. But uh, also, it may be the only thing stopping the war from breaking out in the Ukraine. So, But that's actually a serious point. In some of the briefing papers that I've read describing Putin's tactical thinking, the point is made repeatedly that he might just be waiting for the end of the Olympic Games so he doesn't show up Xi Jinping. He seems to be trying to court Xi as a possible ally, depending on what his endgame as far as the Ukraine is. And that's something I guess we can probably discuss in more detail since it's really unclear exactly what's going on and the situation seems very fluid at this point. Yeah, it's funny how the Olympics is almost a kind of soft power phenomenon as well as like a spectacle for capital. I recall the Russia made the Crimean annexation just after the Sochi Olympics, I think. And certainly when we had the Olympics here in London, it was used as a big coup for British politics albeit not in a foreign policy way. Well, it's a very fluid situation, as I was saying. And there's a tendency among policymakers in the United States to view Vladimir Putin as some sort of genius foreign policy artist, if you will, that he's playing 3D chess while the rest of Europe or the United States are playing the 2D version. But it's not entirely clear to me that he has a consistent endgame. So maybe that's the first thing we might discuss. What is it that he's trying to achieve? Is there likely to be an attack on the Ukraine by Russia? The Russians have moved about 100,000 troops into the area of the border with the Ukraine. In 2014, they had something like a dozen battalion tactical groups stationed on the border when the whole Donbass revolt got started. It's not entirely clear to me that there's actually much domestic Ukrainian substance to the Donbass revolt. It, it seems very much like a false flag operation undertaken by the Russians, but it's very hard to tell. What we do know now is that there are at least 54 Russian battalion tactical groups and possibly as many 70 currently in the area of the border with Ukraine. A battalion tactical group is about 800 soldiers, sometimes a bit more, uh, along with armor and air defenses. And this looks like the precursor to an attack, but it's not clear what such an attack would achieve. Yes, exactly. Some people view this as Russian expansionism. There's a very old narrative around this, going back through the Cold War to Russian imperialism. That's a history of Russian imperialism. It's very clear, but it's now more contested what exactly Russian objectives would be in Ukraine, since they have these kind of quasi-separatist republics in the Donbass region, and they annex de facto Crimea in 2014. It's possible that it would work better for them if there was a kind of like ethno-federalism within Ukraine that they could easily dominate and just like cripple Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian nationalism for the foreseeable future. That would probably hold off NATO membership, EU membership, potentially a lot of other things that would prevent Ukraine from moving out of Russia's orbit. You know, we've seen similar things in the Balkans. But in a full-on invasion and possible occupation or just total destabilization might rule out such an option. The long-term history of this goes back to 1990 when George Herbert Walker Bush, then president of the United States, gave assurances to the Russian government that the United States had no interest in shifting NATO membership eastward. This was part of the U.S. government's attempt to 
soften the process of transition from communism to some sort of liberalism in Russia. Ever since then, Vladimir Putin has perceived that the United States has been going back on this promise. They've offered EU membership to Hungary, to Poland, and these moves are viewed as intrinsically threatening by Vladimir Putin, whatever you think about his political acumen or his political goals. So the question then becomes, what exactly does he want in the Ukraine? Certainly he doesn't want them to join NATO, but almost nobody wants them to join NATO. The United States isn't interested in enough to engage in some sort of military conflict in order to make it happen. The Europeans, I don't think, are necessarily all that interested in it either. But there's a sort of point to be made that they don't want Vladimir Putin to get the idea that he can simply veto the idea of his own accord, which is certainly what he wants to do. I mean, the Russians put out a pair of treaty drafts in mid-December which demanded that there'd be no more NATO expansion, as well as a number of other conditions which were intrinsically unpalatable to both the EU and the United States. And there is the current thinking among a lot of foreign policy experts in the United States anyway, is that it was meant to be rejected. So it was a sort of part of the spectacle that Putin was trying to create in which Russia is the wronged party, which then functions as a justification for whatever military or political operations they want to undertake subsequently. There's a kind of mutually reinforcing position here. It's almost like a dialectic. You know, you have a kind of Russian nationalism on one side and you have NATO expansionism or the prospect of NATO expansionism on the other side. And the two are kind of drawing each other in ever closer because, of course, Putin needs the perceived threat of U.S. military bases moving ever closer to Russia to justify his own foreign policy positions. Likewise, the U.S. and some NATO powers quite like the prospect of or the idea that there's a threat from Russia in order to justify expansion. It may be true that the United States government doesn't actively want Ukraine to join right now. It's also true that NATO wasn't very popular in Ukraine until there was mounting tensions and conflict with Russia. Funnily enough, that changed public opinion to some degree. But it's still a prospect in the future, mainly because the US military industrial complex and so many other partners in Europe, the propensity to have this permanent arms economy and to keep it going. You need enemies. You need to justify it. And there's a kind of logic to the expansion. I think it's pretty fair to say that a full-on Russian invasion of the Ukraine in which the country is fully occupied is a loser in the long term probably in the short term, too, for Vladimir Putin and for the Russian economy. A lot of their capital comes from supplying gas, particularly to Germany and to Western Europe. Apparently, the Russian central bank has a war chest for trying to see them through any possible sanctions amounting to some $600 billion. But the Germans have said that If the situation gets too hot, that one measure that they would be willing to take would be putting on hold or canceling the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would be a pretty heavy blow against Russian cash flow. There's been some indications lately that Xi and the Chinese have been wanting to move closer to Putin. And the idea, at least among some policy thinkers in the United States, is that China could become an outlet for Russian energy resources in the event that demand from Europe slows down, if Europe moves to different sorts of energy sources, possibly more renewable energy sources or a return to nuclear power. But the problem for the Russians with that approach is that they simply don't have the infrastructure to deliver those energy resources to China right now, whereas they do have a very extensive infrastructure based on delivering 
energy delivering gas, natural gas particularly, to Western Europe. So that's a very costly and very uncertain approach to the problem. It's not clear that they could get the same bang for the buck out of the Chinese. The Chinese get a much better rate on Russian natural gas than Western Europe does. So that could be part of Vladimir Putin's thinking, but it seems pretty clear from his recent moves that his immediate political focus is westward rather than eastward or northeastward. I think it's clear from history why many Russian leaders, and Putin is no exception, would be fixated on possible threats from the West, even outlandish ideas about a westward attack or strikes or whatever it may be. But the reality is really about this increasingly small sphere of influence that they have in post-Soviet republics, which has dwindled over the past 30 years. I mean, Russia is a country that has been in long-term retreat and long-term decline. That's what this narrative, this Cold War narrative that we've seen rehashed again and again misses out. Russia is, is not a country capable of grand-scale wars of the kind that we saw in the 20th century. However, they can cause big problems for small countries that are right next to them, including destabilization. It's possible that the, the military operation we'll see in Ukraine will be an extended version of destabilization as opposed to something like Chechnya, for example. There's a lot of talk of Chechnya and all of this. No one really knows the extent to which things could spiral out of control, but Chechnya is one example that people keep bringing up again and again. It's funny because Western policymakers, Western media, most of them did not give a shit when Russia was pulverizing Chechnya, and still don't. Well, this is an interesting difference between that situation and the current one. From the perspective of people in Western Europe and North America, Chechnya might as well be the moon. Chechens, as far as Americans are concerned, and as far as they acknowledge that Chechens actually exist, there's some version of Middle Easterners, Central Asians, and that reads less important to people in Western Europe and the United States. It simply does. The situation with a potential attack on the Ukraine is much different. I used to work in a record store in the East Village in New York that was right down next to the largest Ukrainian church I have ever seen in my entire life. And the street that went by it was called Tereshevchenko Street. There are a lot of Ukrainians in the United States. This is something with the potential to really get the attention of American policymakers, as it has done so far. The idea of a war in Chechnya didn't really get people's attention. The idea of a lot of dead Ukrainians and possibly a lot of dead Russians gets a lot of people's attention. And not just in Western Europe and the United States. There's a lot of people in Russia who have family connections to the Ukraine. Ukraine is very closely connected to Russia, and not just because of the long history of the Soviet Union, but the much longer history of that region. Ukrainian and Russian are mutually intelligible, as far as I understand it. There's a lot of intermarriage between Russians and Ukrainians. There are a lot of family connections. So... The idea of a war in the Ukraine on the model of the war in Chechnya, I think, would be a hard sell for Vladimir Putin, given that so much of his policy is oriented to simply staying in power and keeping himself popular. So the question is, what does he really want to do? I strongly suspect that he doesn't want to invade. I think that what he would be more interested in is the idea that you sort of mooted earlier of some sort of ethnic federation of maybe hiving off the eastern part of the Ukraine, giving himself an easier pathway to the Crimea. 
There's also a school of thought that says what he really wants to do is use this as part of a larger policy of expanding the Russian military presence in Belarus with an eye toward pressurizing parts of northeastern Europe, particularly Poland and the Baltic states. So there's a number of possible directions that this could go from Putin's perspective. And it's really impossible at this point to say exactly what direction is going to go. It's possible that even he doesn't know. I think that he's probably trying to play the situation in a sort of flexible or fluid manner, waiting to see exactly how much counterpressure Western Europe and the United States are willing to exert. It's likely that Vladimir Putin himself doesn't have a particular endgame in mind, rather a number of possible outcomes dependent on how much counterpressure Western Europe and the United States are willing to exert to prevent any particular one of these policy avenues. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I seriously doubt there's a there's a grand strategy here, except with the aim of holding on to power for as long as possible and trying to reconsolidate what you may see as Russian national interests, whatever they may be. But the idea that Putin is a kind of Machiavellian supervillain is a little bit ridiculous for many reasons, not least because the way Putin handled the so-called Ukraine crisis from 2014 onwards has not been particularly Machiavellian and hasn't served Russia's best interests. And this crisis may well not serve what you might describe as the best interests of the Russian people. It's very unlikely that that it will, actually. If anything, it's a way of shoring up nationalism in the country at a time when conditions of exploitation are still pretty serious and have been since the 1990s. Uh, many Russians were disenfranchised back then, and Putin's reign has been a period of relative stability by contrast, but he can't run on the contrast of the Yeltsin era forever. It's been over 20 years at this point. Yeah, there's a large element of what have you done for me lately in Russian political thinking. And it becomes ever more problematic for Vladimir Putin the closer that the price of oil gets to $60 a barrel. There was a period where both OPEC and Vladimir Putin were content to have the price of oil decline, not perhaps as far as it did. I mean, it got into negative territory. But one of the long-term goals of both OPEC and Vladimir Putin was to try and make oil production in the continental United States uneconomical. The interesting thing about the fracking boom in the United States is the technology is not new. It just only works if the oil price per barrel is particularly high. It's just an expensive and technologically intensive process. But it's not a new process. When oil prices get above a certain point, it becomes economical to do it. Putin's other problem with regard to Russian oil production is that technologically, Russia has fallen behind and a lot of the wells in their traditional fields are in a declining curve in terms of production. One of their big interests is trying to expand production in the Barents Sea. The problem with that is that they need technology from major US-based oil companies in order to do it. And because of the Magnitsky sanctions, they can't do that. Vladimir Putin must have been really happy when Rex Tillerson was made the Secretary of State. But it very quickly became clear that even if certain elements of the U.S. government were interested in a closer relationship with Russia, particularly Donald Trump, who had a very odd sort of buddy-buddy relationship with Vladimir Putin, the U.S. Congress was simply not going to stand for it. And as long as those sanctions are in place, Russian oil production as it currently stands, is probably going to stagnate. Likewise, you have the European gas crisis, which is a, a big part of the backdrop to this whole thing. Particularly the UK is being hit extremely hard by this gas crisis. And the big factor behind that is, again, a lacking quality of Russian technology in the sector and a delay of 
maintenance work through the COVID lockdown periods has meant that prices have started to skyrocket as a result of shortages. The shortages have also been exacerbated by the fact that Russia has pivoted towards Asia and Latin America in terms of priority markets for natural gas. As you alluded to before, they're giving China a much better deal on natural gas. Yeah, there are a lot of dimensions of this, and Vladimir Putin is trying to negotiate an extremely complex geopolitical situation right now. Putin seems to be operating in ways that harken back to his training as a KGB agent in the waning days of the Cold War. So he really has never lost that attitude toward the relationship between Russia and the post-Second World War Western powers that shaped Soviet political thinking, especially in the last two decades of the existence of the Soviet Union. And now he's engaged in broad spectrum warfare involving military, political dimensions, but also technological dimensions. It's pretty clear that he attempted to influence the elections in the United States. It's fairly clear that he's also tried to influence elections in Western Europe. Question still remains, is there some way to get him out of this approach and to get Russia to behave more like, I guess you want to call it a good neighbor, although, and I think that this is an important point too, Russia are not the only drivers of this situation. If NATO expansion hadn't been on the table to begin with, it's arguable, while Vladimir Putin has been a bad actor in a lot of respects, he's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly not. If you go back to the Yeltsin era, Yeltsin very early on, perhaps not in one of his very few sober moments, was pushing for Russian membership of NATO and the European Union. Of course, Russian membership of NATO was, was never on the table, the US. Likewise, membership of the European Union was always very unlikely to go ahead for a multitude of reasons. Despite the fact that the Soviet Union broke up, NATO was not going to disappear, just as the Warsaw Pact disappeared. It's funny that we don't think of NATO in the same terms as we would if the Warsaw Pact was still around. It'd be a kind of farcical situation if the Eastern Bloc still existed after the fall of communism. It would be very weird. And yet NATO is a perfectly normal organization. Yeah, a lot of this begs the question as to what the purpose of NATO is at this point. Originally, its purpose was, as one British diplomat expressed it, to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. But none of those things are really necessarily operative anymore. The Germans are certainly not down, and the fact that they're up has really rejigged the fortunes of Europe, both politically and economically. Certainly, they do want to keep the Russians out, but I don't really think that it's NATO doing this. Even in the early days of NATO, it was conceded by all of the powers involved that if the Soviet Union decided to move westward militarily, they could be to the English Channel in a couple of days, and there was really not a lot that could be done to stop them. NATO currently is an organization searching around for a purpose. They really haven't had much to do in terms of European politics since the Balkan crisis of the early 90s, which, by the way, also involved the disciplining using high explosives of Serbia, which was a Russian client state and continues to be. So the issue of NATO expansion is, the issue of NATO expansion is really just sort of a chess piece. There is no real institutional reason to do it, except that from the Ukrainian perspective, being ensconced in NATO and or the EU would materially decrease the chances that Russia would either invade or attempt militarily to destabilize the country. Yes, indeed. If we go back to the issue of 
you know, how do we get get out of this situation and say, lure Putin out of his warlike posture? There has to be some kind of pact on the table. There has to be some kind of move to build up or build on the arms agreements that were laid down in the 1980s to basically restrain arms on both sides. Even though the Soviet Union no longer exists, those treaties are still relevant in all of this. There needs to be agreements on the table about limiting NATO expansion, ultimately. EU expansion is another matter that's more complicated. But if you can decouple the two, then that's a start. And having a kind of neutral bloc was always the best idea, although it it may now be the case that it's too far gone. Likewise, Putin's efforts to influence Western politics... Whether or not he's been successful, I think that's very debatable. I'm, I'm a sceptic when it comes to whether or not Russian influence swayed Western elections. I think it's very unlikely. But his strategy of supporting hard-right and far-right populist parties and figures all over the world, it's hard to see how we can de-escalate that without having agreements with serious concessions on the table. Any kind of organised opposition within Russia to Russian aggression, to Russian nationalism... The only way we can aid that is by setting limits on our own leaders, on our own governments, which are which are very much culpable in all of this. I speak as a British citizen whose leader flew to Ukraine to appear with the Ukrainian leader and basically pretend to be Winston Churchill and talk up war. Boris Johnson is craving war for the sake of his own future within the Tory party hierarchy. You know, there are many political wills invested in the situation getting very out of hand, sadly. Well, I certainly agree that the actual effect of Russian political meddling, at least in the elections in the United States, was pretty minimal. Although there is a very interesting dynamic going on in U.S. politics. As I was growing up in the last decades of the Cold War, hating on Russia was de rigueur. I mean, it was just a thing, the done thing, if you will. And now there's a certain faction within the political right in the United States that wants to say, hey, Russia isn't really so bad. And there's a lot that can be unpacked there. But irrespective of whether Russian influence actually changed the course of the election, and I think it's very debatable that it did, I think that Timothy Snyder had a good point when he argued that one thing that Putin wants to do is create states that operate like Russia does, as a way of justifying his own stance and his own political behavior so that he can say, hey, look, the Germans, or hey, look, the Americans act like this too, so really I'm not so bad, and this is the kind of coin of the realm in terms of how international politics is done. Indeed, from the Russian government's perspective, it has many fires to put out on its periphery. Ukraine is just one of the biggest. You have the crisis in Kazakhstan, where the... Kazakh regime is facing mass protest, called upon Russian support basically to intervene in its own political crisis to save the government, more or less. In Belarus, you have an often misleadingly labelled government. You know, it's often described as pro-Russian. That's not quite true. Lukashenko has played both sides constantly, whether it be Russia or the EU and the US on one side. But the whole of Belarus is very eastward looking generally. So it's been a simple, a more simple issue than Ukraine for Russia. But these crises that Russia faces, they're matched by its own internal problems. And they're not going to go away. Well, I think the one thing that is pretty clear is that we're still in very early days in terms of how this crisis is going to play out. I doubt that anything of substance will really happen before the end of the Olympic Games for the reasons stated earlier. So a lot of what we're going to have to do is wait and see how the game of mutual pressures plays out. And I don't think that there's any way to see clearly exactly what the outcome is going to be, although 
probably we are entering a period of increased tension and increased instability, both in Europe and globally, because of the increasing intensity of energy politics, particularly, and the intermingling of the politics of energy with other geopolitical aims. And one of the points that often gets made in American political thinking about reigning in Vladimir Putin is that if Putin is allowed to push into the Ukraine, then perhaps the Chinese think maybe this is the time to revise the situation in Taiwan. So once again, it's a very complicated situation. And even for the best informed, I think it's fair to say that only time will tell exactly how it's going to shake out. Well, that's all from us for the time being. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back next time with more musings on the state of international politics. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you next time.